good? Doing okay? All right, if you need a Bible, grab a Bible. They're in the cart in the back there. Hopefully you've got a Bible or uh, fire up your Bible app, but actual um, turning pages is bonus points. So um, hopefully, hopefully you've got one. Coming back? You're sitting on that side? Anyone else want to do si this morning and get a different seat? That'd be fine. Um, so we're week two on a series that's probably going to take us six weeks to get through four chapters, which is about right, um, but it's going to be great. So in 2015, um, it, there was a little bit of excitement and trepidation in the literary world, and the reason for that was there was an announcement um, through, actually I'm not sure the publishing house, so I'm not going to say, but there was an announcement of a second work by an author who changed uh, 20th century literature. And how many of you have read To Kill a Mockingbird, but Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird? Maybe in school you read it. Uh, maybe you came across this uh, novel through the movie, 1962, Gregory Peck. It's a classic um, and set in the deep south, Jim Crow South, and, and just uh, pulled back uh, some pretty big issues through the lens of uh, one family. And in, in, uh, in, in actually, um, Atticus um, is Atticus Finch, uh, the, the lawyer, is constantly listed in top ten of um, literary heroes. Um, one of the most recent ones that I had read, it was a poll um, over in the UK, and it was, who's, who's your literary hero, or what hero from some novel or literature uh, do you, and Atticus was, was number one. And so uh, 2015, you might remember this, maybe uh, you know this well. In 2015, uh, the world got excited and nervous, because in 2015, the publishing house of... Um, uh, I can't tell off of that, Mark. But anyway, uh, made an announcement that um, a manuscript from Harper Lee, who was still at this point alive, but uh, mentally uh, compromised. Uh, anyway, um, we're releasing this story, which is Ghost Set a Watchman. Anyone pick this up or anyone read it? Uh, yeah, not the, it, Yeah, that's kind of what I expected. I haven't read it either. Um, if you heard of it or know about this a little bit, it's probably not a neutral uh, on this, right? So you know the story, right? So uh, there's some controversy on whether or not Harper actually even wanted this story released, uh, whether she even wrote it. Uh, some people were calling into question. Uh, the issues with it, if you're unfamiliar with this, is that um, it's set in a time... It, same same time, same characters, same story, but actually different characters in the Atticus, uh, who is this light of anti-racism and um, just as as a dad, a character that I want to I, I want to be shaped by. In 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 to go set a watchman, the story is very different, and Atticus is painted very different. And so some talk about this in a way that like it's the development of a character and it's showing who he became wasn't who he was. And others were like, this was something that she wrote to begin to get this thing going and, and get, uh, but that wasn't who she wanted these characters to end up as. 
And so there was this like, I don't know what to do. Or And it's interesting, in tossing this to the room, um, how many of us had read To Kill a Mockingbird who um, loved To Kill a Mockingbird or were challenged or shaped by To Kill a Mockingbird and just haven't touched this or don't want much to do with it. Now, part of that might um, have to do with the fact that there is really, really ugly stats that show most of America, after they graduate high school, do not read another novel or book again, which is tragic um, because <laughs> you have to talk about that. Um, so maybe that's coming into play. Maybe maybe you're one and you're like, I don't really like to read. I was forced to read in school. I did what I had to do to get through it. Um, and if you're in that camp, I would just say get an Audible subscription and keep reading because there's a lot of really good books out there and you might just have processing issues with written text. So I love Audible. I continue to read with Audible. Um, and... Uh, but anyway, so this story, okay, this story. So it's, it's very interesting, and I, I wonder if we were to just kind of go out into the wild or talk to uh, one of the English teachers at North or at West or talk to one of the literary professors over at the university here, like, do you still recommend reading To Kill a Mockingbird? And, and listen, that's not an easy book, is it? And then from those who say yes, hopefully it's all of them, but then, do you, do you recommend reading or do you make as an assignment, uh, go set a watchman? And then kind of finding out why or why not. Jay, what does this have to do with anything? I think you're going to go long. <laughs> okay, settle down, number one. Um, number two, I just skipped a whole pages of notes, so we're great. Um, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here's what it has to do with. Okay, so we're week two in on looking at a story that you are, I am guessing, familiar with. Even those who weren't raised in the church probably have a smidge of familiarity with the story of the book of Jonah. In the story of the book of Jonah, there are um, uh, parts of the story that are captured and brought into even our modern, even right now just released on Disney Plus uh, culture with Tom Hanks' Pinocchio coming out, A Whale. Pinocchio getting swallowed by a whale, that didn't come from nowhere. And so it's not the same story. It's not a one-for-one. One. Oh, I never knew that. Geppetto is who in the... No, that's don't do that. But, but the elements of this story continue to affect and, and play out in, into our culture. Now, last week was, I'll just say it, it was a lot of heavy lifting. It was intro. It was a lot of context. It was super a lot of history. We talked about kings and kingdoms and splits. And if you weren't here, don't worry, we're going to recap it. So if you were here and you're like, oh my word, Jason, are you serious? Yes, I am actually. <laughs> but not a super long recap because this is important. Because it's, it's easy for me to say we're going to go into the book of Jonah. And I don't know if you know this, this is just uh, maybe it's inside uh, baseball and it doesn't mean anything to anyone. But, but even in putting the graphics together for this series, I intentionally told Amy, uh, we're not going to do anything with a fish. And she's like, really? That's, but you're doing Jonah. I'm like, it's just it's too, it's in your face, and it's just too. And actually, this isn't even really about the fish. And so last week we saw that if, uh, chances are, 
Well, last week we saw Jonah, the story of Jonah starts in a different part of the Bible than Jonah chapter 1. Here we go. 2 Kings chapter 14. We're not going to do the whole of the history of this. Don't worry. It's only going to take a little bit. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. Now remember, this is a time there's two kingdoms. They've split the northern 12 The northern ten tribes have done their own thing. The southern two tribes uh, are are doing their thing. So in the north, the capital is uh, Samaria or Damascus. Um, And this all began with, uh, well, okay, we don't have to do that now. But anyway, so there's two kingdoms. Israel's the north, Judah's the south, Judah's Jerusalem. And so Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. That's a long reign. That's a long reign, we're going to see. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. That's the first Jeroboam. So Jeroboam 1, this one we're looking at now is Jeroboam 2. We're going to see there's a big gap in between them. He was the one who restored, though, the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea. So he expands the northern boundaries in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, who? Jonah, son of Amittai, or Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Got it? Everyone, your geography's good. You know, Gath Hefer's uh, near Nazareth. It's up around the Sea of Galilee. It's in the north. Um, so here's where, uh, when I say I'm like nerding out on this, so this is the, so this is uh, uh, Professor John Walton uh, University, I forget if he's at Trinity or if he's at, um, uh, anyway, down near Chicago. So John Walton put together this, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever like read First Kings, First Chronicles, First, or First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, look at the list of names, and rather than doing what we always do, which is just kind of skip past them to get to dialogue and plot. Anyone else? It's the Bible. I don't do that, Jay. Okay, right. (laughs) Where you take the list of names of the kings and you do, and I did this this week. First I was writing them and I'm like, that didn't fit into my legal pad. And then I made a spreadsheet. Anyone ever gotten so nerdy Bible you're like making spreadsheets? This was a fun week. And so I'm making this nerdy thing, and I'm like, do I make the cells bigger to represent there? And then I was looking around the coffee shop and just going, you are a loser, Jay. But, and then I found this. So this is, this is the order of the king from the northern kingdom. Not to get too nerdy, we're not going to go, but this is, you bring it up if you want, in the uh, docere. Um, this is, you could, there's four different timelines here. So what's the deal on this? I know, you're like, what? It's too small. It is. It's very small. But, so this is Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam splits the kingdom around-ish nine, early 900s. Or is that late? We're BC. Anyway, 920s, 930s. And then we have the kingdom go from there. Now, here's Jeroboam the second. We're in the 780s, 790s, depending on how you timeline that. Now, the difficulty with doing dates in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is that uh, there's multiple ways to do this. With using ancient manuscripts and ancient writings, Assyrian writings, Babylonian writings, Egyptian writings, uh, there's all kinds of really cool nerd stuff you could go on this. 
But what they do is they go, okay, this thing happened here and this event happened here, say uh, the eruption of Pompeii, and it's recorded. And then they triangulate that to when other things are written. And so there's internal um, evidence from Scripture, and then there's external evidence from Scripture. And depending, not all of those line up perfectly, which doesn't mess us up at all, shouldn't mess you up at all. Because in the ancient world, dates and times and numbers were used differently than they are now. Differently than they are now. So think about it this way. If you're a child of the 60s, or you're talking about a child of the 60s, everyone in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Either it's an error you want to forget, or it's a fun thing to make fun of, or it had some concerts you wish you could have gone to, or whatever. You know what I mean when I say the child of the 60s. But which year in the 60s? Which date in the 60s? When I say Woodstock, you have an idea of Woodstock, but how many people exactly were at Woodstock? If you talk to children of the 60s, apparently they all were at Woodstock, (laughs) right? And, And it was a big, crazy, large number, but it wasn't everyone, and not everyone wanted to be, and you you get it. And so we still do this a little bit in our culture. We talk in terms of of decades or generations or movements or time or whatever. Um, But in the ancient world, that was that way. But but we read things that are lists of dates or a war with numbers of people involved in the war. And we overlay on that my modern, like not even scientific mind, but like my court of law kind of mind. A fact is a fact, just the facts, ma'am, right? And kind of making demands of texts and of back ancient texts that would have not been the litmus test for true or not true, okay? Okay. So when we read things, even genealogies or whatever, or if you line up, sometimes the dates are going to go, what's going on? And so don't let that freak you out. Don't, I guess that's my thing. Don't let it freak you out. But here's, here's the thing about this. So Jeroboam 2, here we go. Um, we read them. Good king, bad king. Good king or bad king, Jeroboam 2. Bad, bad. How do we know Bad. Well, Scripture tells us he's bad, right? Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel, uh, oh, that was the first. So our Jeroboam, Jeroboam 2, reigns 41 years, does evil in the eyes of the Lord, doesn't turn away from any of the sins of the dude who split the kingdom to start with. But, verse 25, he's the one who restores the boundary of Israel. He gets them back to uh, promised thing. And we could go way, way nerdy on this. And there's some reasons why he's able to do this. One of them is the Assyrian Empire is fighting someone else at this point in history. And so the fact that they're fighting a different place means the ones who they, uh, Israel was in border with was fighting the Assyrians, which meant the, Israelite, the, the northern kingdom could expand. The other thing to keep in mind in terms of uh, ancient culture is we think of boundaries and we have maps and we have hard lines. Anyone ever hear the story of Georgia? Is it Georgia and Tennessee who are fighting over water rights in a certain place? And when the the borders were originally drawn up, they were drawn up wrong. You know this story? Oh, it's super. We don't have any time for this, but it's too cool. 
So uh, on maps, this one, there's water rights to this one thing, and, and they belong to uh, Georgia. But in reality, the way it's the, the, the boundaries were originally written, the water rights don't go to Georgia, they go to Tennessee. And so it's in, it's in the courts even right now. So we think of boundaries between like very hard and fast boundary. It's something you draw, it's something, it's, you can GPS it, you get a little bing when you come into Wisconsin, if you're driving out of state, and you get to see what? Wisconsin and then a cheese head on Google Maps, because that's what we are. But in the ancient world, boundaries weren't hard and fast things. In fact, it's one of the reasons why one of the big sins God talks about is don't move boundary markers. But in the ancient world, boundaries were a thing that were a little more fluid. And the reason they were a little more fluid is depending on how strong your king was or how strong your tribe was or how strong the nation was at that point, you might go to war with the nation right next to you so that you could get the well that you've been looking at hoping you could have or that you could have a little bit more pasture land to graze or whatever. And so when we're at this point in time, four decades, Jeroboam II, uh, it's a time of relative peace because there's fighting going on somewhere else. He's able to expand the boundaries. Good thing or bad thing, expanding the boundaries? Good thing, right? Good thing. It's good. And yet he's a wicked king, right? And so there's, we don't have time for any of this, but as a side idea is this. Does God's plan equal God's blessing? God's plan, we read 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, Jonah speaks to Jeroboam II saying, God's going to expand the kingdom. But Jeroboam's a wicked king. Says it right in the text. So, which is this? Is Jeroboam being blessed, the kingdom's expanding, or is Jeroboam being judged, he's a wicked king? What do we see? This is a big question in this. And it actually weaves into the book of Jonah and the big text of the story of Scripture. Too many times in our practical Christianity lives, whether we theologically believe it, but only practically believe it, we say that when good things are happening in my life, God is happy with me and blessing me. And when bad things happen in my life, he's correcting me or, or not happy with me. Right? I mean, maybe we wouldn't say we believe that, but that is, that is the common pragmatic belief. And so here in this text, well, Jay, I don't know if that's true or not. How many people have God used to move his story forward who are people of bad character? Even if they can quote a verse of the Bible, even if they can rally up the Christians in the area, even if they can whatever, just because God moves his story forward doesn't mean God is approving of who that person is. And so just on a non-political but critically thinking follower of Christ, us, let's not get roped in. And let us be able to differentiate between God moving his story forward, but God not approving or blessing of the individual who is moving the story forward. Does that make sense?
And so I know this isn't like, so this is, so how do I apply that to my real life? This is like a uh, um, uh, mindset hopefully shifting for us. Because God's plan or God's unfolding plan or God moving his story forward, however you want to say that, doesn't equal God's blessing or stamp of approval on a person. We see that in King Cyrus, the Persian king who helps rebuild the second temple. Um, But we very much see this in the story of the judges. Most of those judges are rotten. They're rotten. And actually, when I get frustrated with a politician and think, what am I, I need to type something so the whole world changes their mind. I find myself in one of the book of Judges, or in one of the stories of the book of Judges. Because, see, God is moving his story of redemption to the end of the ages forward, to the point where he says, time's up, and returns and sets it all to right. And then instead of having to put up with a not great, sinful, broken, needing salvation politician or system, the perfect judge who judges in righteousness and in mercy will set it all to right. So if you've ever gone like, I don't know, and I don't feel like I have a voice, or I don't feel like I fit in on all this, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. Yet on the flip of that, no, God is not thwarted, and he's moving his plan forward. He's moving his plan forward. And that's where we come back into contact with Jonah. What is Jonah's message? Oh, yeah, let's just keep doing it this way. What's Jonah's message? Back where Second Kings 14, what's his message? I mean, we get him, but where's like the quotation on what Jonah spoke? We don't have it, do we? We don't have this. And that's not always the case when we come into contact with one of the prophets in Chronicles or in Samuel or in Kings. Like, uh, sometimes we get their message. Here we don't get Jonah's message, do we? Now, this is super important, and I know this is like, Jay, turn to Jonah 1, let's get going. But this is so super important. Because by the time the ancients come into contact with the book of Jonah, they've probably already known Jonah, either in real life or through the retelling or through having access to Second Kings. And so when we get to the book of Jonah coming into the scene, folks know who Jonah is, or at least like, oh, I I recognize that name. He was with one of the northern kings and one of the, actually one of the wicked northern kings. Oh, the book of Jonah, I wonder what this is all about. See, the reason we're spending so much time in all of this, the reason we're working so hard in this, is to strip away the fact that we know what the book of Jonah is and to try as hard as we can to get back to a place where we're shocked by the book of Jonah and convicted by the book of Jonah. And so back to this, the reason God's plan doesn't necessarily equal God's blessing, well, Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 through 45, but I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you. Great, that's super easy. We've all just crushed that, right? Do you have your merit badge on praying for those who persecute you and loving those who hate you? Everyone, we're good, right? We could just lop that verse off. We could stop using it. 
right? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's a weird way to start verse 45. I guess we'll keep 44. Why? Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the character of God who calls you son or daughter. Pragmatic, practical Christianity says, when I do good things and God is happy with me, he blesses me. When I do bad things and God is not happy with me, God punishes me. What is Jesus saying? Rain on the righteous and the wicked. Sun to come up on the righteous and the wicked. Now we could go way in on this and see what that means, but just read it at the surface level. God blesses those. God provides for those. God takes care of those he is pursuing who have come to him and who have not yet come to him. He's a good God. He's a good God. And so if somewhere in the mix your theology has been, well, God only blesses his people, Yes, God blesses his people. There is that kind of thing, but he doesn't withhold blessing from those who are not yet his own. Jesus said it, and I, I don't think we have any reason to question it. In fact, we have no reason to question it. So this is the character of God. He takes care of those, and in reality, all are his, right? Just we're either running from him or running toward him. So let's get to Jonah. How's Jonah begin? Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, in reality, I should have like stopped it too and not had any of this on. But there's no way of doing Jonah without us already knowing all this. So we're just going to leave it here, because it's awkward. It's awkward. So when we read Jonah chapter 1, we come to this. Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah is found in, uh, it's called the Twelve, or in the Minor Prophets, often referred to as the Twelve. Now these are the Minor Prophets. It has nothing to do with the fact that their message is, is uh, not significant. Minor or major, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It has nothing to do with significance. It has everything to do with length. So we have the minor prophets. And, and the interesting and the cool thing about the minor prophets, and people get weird on this, there's 12 of them, 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 12. Okay, whatever. There's 12, the 12. The significance isn't in on this because I'm like teasing out something no one's ever thought of before. That's actually really scary and dangerous. And if somebody like d- trips your buttons that way, like have serious filter on that. These texts have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and coming up with something brand new in it is pretty scary. And so leaning on the tradition of those who've gone before us, they're the 12. Now, if you go into the 12, you're going to see things like this. Hosea, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of uh, that guy, during the reign of that guy, and that guy, and that guy, and that guy. And kings of Judah, and the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, that's our guy. Joel, one, the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of him. Amos, the words of Amos. He was a shepherd. Amos is a cool story. Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. Micah, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of that guy, that guy, that guy, and that guy. Habakkuk, the prophecy of Habakkuk. Zephaniah. See, we're cruising. We're not going to go long. We could have done stuff on every one of the 12. Haggai. 
in the second year of King Darius, in the first year of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zadok, the high priest, and then Zechariah, and then Malachi, a prophecy, the word of the Lord. How does Jonah 1.1 start? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So when we come across this and we hear this and we read this and we're like, okay, what kind of book is this? What kind of book is this? This isn't a trick. What kind of book is this? It's the same. He's in the 12. It's the 12. It's one of the minor prophets. This is a book of prophecy, right? Prophecy. I know we get weird about prophets and stuff. Let's just strip all that away. Prophets aren't fortune tellers or or futurists or uh, prophets, depending. Prophets in the ancient world were someone that God gave a word to to speak that word to a people. It wasn't just future telling. It wasn't just a, it was a, hey, sometimes it was a reminding of the sins of the past. Often it is a call to change the behavior and the heart of the now. And then there is the, or this is going to happen. It wasn't like Joel only talking about 2023. Let's get to the secret message of it. And it's fun to do that stuff because you can overlay a lot of interpretations and stuff. But anyway, it's super dangerous. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonas, son of Amittai. And so if we in our modern eyes read this, and even the ancients in the ancient world, hearing this or reading this would go, okay, this is a book of prophecy. I know what to do with this. Books of prophecy contain the oracle. It contains the prophecy. It contains the word, right? If you read, you read Joel, you read Amos, you read Micah, you read, you get the prophecy. Amy, my, I was like every week towards the end of the week before Sunday, I like give the, the, the pre-sermon sermon to Amy. And she's like, what you should do, Jay, is uh, count up the number of words from all the other minor prophets that are the oracles. And then let's count up the number of words that are the, act, that are the oracle in the book of Jonah. And here's the thing. The message of God to the people in the book of Jonah is five words, five Hebrew words, five. That's a super small collection of prophecy. And so right away in this, the reason we're spending so much time, and don't worry, we're not going to do history every single time, but the reason we're spending so much time grounding Jonah as an actual person in an actual place with an actual kingdom, with an actual God who's actually giving him a word is because by the time we get to his actual word, it's not at all what we expect it to be or what it should be. Because none of the other 12, none of the 12, out of all of the minor, even the major, Jonah is unique. Now, last week I hinted and said Jonah might be parable, Jonah might be this, Jonah might be... Listen, let's just table all that for a while and we'll leave it for a discussion then. Because see what, 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 well, actually, we're not going to do that all the way. That's not fair. The author of the book of Jonah is doing something that none of the other biblical authors are doing. Now, this gets into how we get our scripture and what the Bible actually is. The Bible did not descend from heaven a completed text. 
The Bible is a collection of books and writings. Some of it's been edited. Some of it's been curated. Not in a bad way. The book of Psalms is different if you read it in different uh, manuscripts. The order is different. The numbering is different. How we get things, well, it matters. And in, in what uh, type of literature the writing in the books of the Bible is. Don't think of it as a book. Think of it as a library. But all of the library is the Word of God. Now, we'll touch on this a little and, and then touch on it a little more and a little more. This, this past summer, I got into an academic battle with a really good friend of mine. And I didn't realize it was a battle, but it was a battle over a theological concept. You ever had one of those? You get talking to somebody and you're like buddies with them and like 99% of the world you agree with and you're like, yeah, the Packers are awful, right? And then, um, and then, uh, and then you hit that one thing and you're like, oh my word, we're not at all on the same page on this. No one had that happen at all in the last three years, right? Right? Come on. And so then, so this happened. This happened about a really, really big idea, and the really, really big idea is a theological uh, doctrinal concept called the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. I know this isn't a great sermon, but we're, we're mixing in some sermon. Don't worry, there's sermon and some, hopefully some deep teaching. So to the theologians... The authority of Scripture means that in the, the original manuscripts, it's all accurate and true in, 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 uh, uh, and that it speaks to us, that it is the Word of God. That is the authority of Scripture. That's what, that's what theologians and scholars fight about. But see, in this, con- this conversation with this friend of mine, who I'm still very good friends with, and we had a good long conversation over lunch about this, And I'm like, I think you're saying something that I'm not saying. This isn't authority of Scripture. And we'll touch this next week. We'll we'll unpack this a little bit more. But, okay, why does this have to do with Jonah? The authority of Scripture is more than the factual truthfulness of the Bible. In our modern world where, remember, again, where we looked at dates, times, those numbers kinds of things, are they factual or are they fictional? And as soon as we say it's not a fact, then it's we toss it out. In my working definition of the authority of Scripture is the voice that we allow the Bible to have in our life. That is the authority of Scripture. It's not dependent on what year the flood happened or didn't happen or how big the flood was. It's not dependent on 5,000 exactly standing there getting fed by Jesus. Was it 5,000? I'm willing to bet it was give or take. Right? Why? Because the number is not the point. Jesus wasn't like, hold on just a second. We're writing all this down. So if you could just sit still for a minute, and then Peter, actually, you're pretty distracted. Thomas, could you, like, count all the, right? We get it, right? The authority of Scripture is the voice that we allow the Bible to speak into our life, to challenge us, to shape us, to inform uh, our perspective and our views and our beliefs on God. 
revealed Jesus. And so, when, what does this have to do with anything, Jay? You don't even have a slide for this. You're off your notes. We're going to go long. The authority of Scripture comes into play with the book of Jonah because how we read the book of Jonah is shaped by our view of the authority of Scripture and shapes our understanding of the authority of Scripture and the gospel and the God who moves in history to move his story forward and the God who's doing bigger things than just giving us a history book to fight about. So even though Jonah is in the book of the prophets, Jonah is not a book of prophecy. Jonah is a story about a prophet, which is different than any of the other books. It doesn't matter on, in the debate on what Jonah is, we all agree Jonah is a story about a prophet. And this is the story. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and we could have fun with this. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah goes and does exactly what God says to do. The end. Thanks for coming. We'll see you. No, not at all, right? Jonah. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Great, we know what to expect. It's going to be a book of prophecy, a words of the things. Oh no, it's not that. It's not that. So right away in that, it should throw us off and go, well, what is this about then? What is this about then? Now, the reason, again, of doing so much work to get us into the place of where we go, okay, kingdom, king, history, da-da-da, Jonah, real, okay, it's so that we can, as best we can, and we can't do this, but as best we can get into a place where we go, oh, my word, this isn't what I expected. Because that's exactly what it would have happened to the original readers in this and the original hearers in this. Remember, Jonah, book of Jonah, that's awesome. I kind of know that guy. But I don't know any of his message other than the kingdom is going to expand. This must be the word of God on what the kingdom expansion is going to look like. And then the very next sentence is, the wickedness of Nineveh has come before me. Go and preach against them. That's not at all. Second Kings chapter 14. What in the world? What in the world? And the beauty in that, what is going on here, is that is the question we're supposed to have. And I know it's so hard to have that question because we know the story. We should do this out of the King James or out of the message, just to mess it up for us. But this is what God says. Go, their wickedness has come up before me. This is a message unlike any of the other messages that God gives to any of his other people. None of the other prophets are given a message and then told to go to a foreign nation and give that message to the foreign nation. That is a huge marquee. Oh my, this is not like the others. What's going on here? And so we asked that. Quick map, here we go. Jonah's up in here. Sorry, this is map, Google Earth. You could fly and it'd be amazing. So then we're up here, come down to Joppa, down to Joppa. Just good to know, people of Israel, God's people, they're not boat people. They don't do boats. Boats come into play, very few stories. 
except for Sea of Galilee fishermen, but even those aren't the greatest boat stories, are they? They're not ocean explorers, let's put it that way. So here's Joppa, there's Nineveh, up on the Tigris, the bank of the Tigris River, up near modern-day Mosul. That, we'll leave that one for later. Here's Nineveh near Mosul, reconstructed a bit. I don't know if this is before or after ISIS destroyed the archaeological site of Nineveh. But you can go if, well, it's, it's not the safest place to go, but anyway, you could go. So he, so Jonah runs away from the Lord, heads for Tarshish. I don't know map-wise how this works for you, but here we go. Nineveh, Joppa, Tarshish. That is the exact reaction that the original audience would have hopefully gotten, the author would have intended. Where is he supposed to go? Well, it's this land travel over here to Nineveh, right? Where does he actually go? Down, catches a boat, and literally goes to the end of the world. Tarshish is over near the gates of Gibraltar. It's the edge of the known world. There is in this such an extreme that the storyteller is doing a beautiful, beautiful job of inviting us into how ridiculous is Jonah being in this moment. He could have just gone like, no thanks, I'm just going to stay here. Right? He's prophet to the king who's expanding the kingdom, who's reigning for 40 years, who's in a place of peace and of prosperity and everything else. He's wicked king, but you know, he's got a gig. But in the story, he goes to Joppa and then catches a boat. Why? Why? It's not because he's afraid of Nineveh or the Assyrians. Next week, we'll take a look at just how bad the Assyrians are. But just real quick, Assyrians' worst, worst of the worst at this point in history, in top five in all-time worsts in the history of the world for kingdom or empires. Nineveh, capital of Assyria. Assyria is so bad. Uh, Assyrians, and, and we have writings of the Assyrians. We have uh, relief uh, taken from archaeological digs, reliefs uh, in the British Museum and in different places. The Assyrians would do things like this. They were strategic in the way they would capture and overthrow a kingdom. They'd go in. They'd destroy the city, and they'd say, now pay us taxes. And if the city didn't want to pay taxes and they raised up, then they'd come back and they'd destroy them again. But this time, they would take the social elite and the leaders and the scholars and the academics and the politicians, and they would move them somewhere else. And then, if they still rebelled, in the stories in the Bible of this, if they still rebelled, they'd come back in and they'd just completely decimate them. Gone. One of the reasons there's so much archaeology in, in Palestine and in, in, in the ancient Near East is because these cities, they weren't just like crumbling over time. They were completely destroyed and then rubble on top of them. And that's what the Assyrians would do. But they wouldn't just do that. Here's, how, here's an example of one of the things the Assyrians would do. They come in, destroy, win, because they always won. And if they won, one of the things they would do is they would take the warriors or the leaders of the enemy who they had just defeated, they'd cut off their legs, cut off one of their arms, leave one arm so they could still salute or shake the victorious Assyrian 
and then they would die. The Assyrians were the worst. They were the worst. And so here's a God who says to his prophet, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against them because their uh, wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah flees. Twice in verse 3, it says he flees. Why? Well, later in the story, we find out why. This is after the events. We'll circle back to this in a couple days, but this just gives it to us. Jonah. But Jonah, but to this seemed, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. This is after he preaches, after they repent, and the animals repent, and everything else. It's crazy. So he prays to the Lord. This is God's man. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because his message was successful. Worst prophet ever. Hey, Jonah, you're going to have a message. It's going to be five words. You're actually not going to have a very good message. You're not going to mention God or what they've done wrong. You're just going to say it's coming. And everyone repents and the whole city turns. And then you're going to have a pity party about it. This is so extreme. What is Jonah saying? He's actually saying what God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34. Right after uh, the whole turmoil of the giving of the law, Moses coming down, seeing all the fertility celebration going on there with the calf, smashing the rocks, God going to destroy them. Am I saying Jonah? Sorry, Moses. And then God... He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Next verse is blessing for a thousand generations, bringing on uh, judgment for a thousand generations. This is God saying, This is who I am. Why is Jonah mad? Because God is who he says he is. Jonah is so stinking mad because he knows if he goes to Nineveh, he's going to preach, and then they're probably going to repent. And if they repent, God is true to himself. If Jonah is only a kid's story, we miss all of this. We miss the Hebrew nationalism of the story. We miss the the protectionism We miss the good of the expansion of the nationism. We miss the shocking nature of this text that is still there regardless of how you read it. The author of this text is doing something incredibly beautiful in making this such an extreme story. We're drawn into it. And in getting drawn into it, we're like, oh my word, that Jonah is such a, are you kidding me? Prophet of God? Like, I'm no prophet, and I know you don't do this. And then we're going to get to the end, and we go, oh, my word. This is what I do almost every time. 
And see, the reason we're doing such heavy lifting, next week's going to be different. The reason we've done such heavy lifting two weeks in a row, it's not because last week I wasn't happy with and we're remixing it and doing it again. It's trying to get into a place where we are reading this and going, oh my word, oh my word. Because what happens is, is we read the book of Jonah, we don't read it because we read it back in the day and we know what it is. It's about a fish. There's a big city. takes three days to walk across. Just going to let you know, no such thing. Nineveh is seven miles around. We read this and we go, okay, I got it. Next. Or we don't read it because we remember the flannel graph or we read it to our kids or we don't want to read a story about a fish. And the thing that's so incredible and so difficult in the story of Jonah is that this should be a shaping story for us as the people of God in the same way that it is always meant to be a shaping story for the people of God. I will never fight about whether or not Jonah is a historical narrative. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Follower of Christ, if you believe in a risen Savior, you've got bigger miracle stories that are problematic than a fish that somebody lived in for three days. You got a dude who was dead for three days, who's not dead anymore. Follower of Christ, that is the miraculous story that changes everything. Jesus grabs this story. This is where we end with this series. I have the end in mind already. We're going to go in and dig out the sign of Jonah from the Gospels. It's awesome. But it's not a story about a fish. It's not a story about, man, if we could just preach like Jonah, then Washington, D.C. would turn or whatever kind of silliness messages we'd draw out of it. The point of the story of Jonah is God, who is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who extends his mercy even to those who are the enemy, especially to those. And how absolutely much that should wreck me. Because I want a God who brings judgment on my enemies and blesses me and my tribe. So what do we do with this? This is what we do with this. At the end of this series, hopefully we have some interesting uh, cocktail party kind of things to say about the book of Jonah. Next time you're with somebody, you know, out and about mingling, doing our adult things, you're like, hey, did you know Jonah actually was during Jeroboam the second? And they're like, that's amazing. Tell me more. That's not going to happen at all. But the real thing that I hope happens for us all is that in the deepest things, we begin to see the stuff that shapes the way we actually are shaped by and interact with God's word. God's word is authoritative, not because I can pinpoint dates and times and numbers. God's story is authoritative because it speaks incredibly important truth into who I actually am. And it's been doing that since it was first told around campfires and then eventually written down and then eventually bound all together and then eventually given to us now. So as these questions are coming up for you as we're going through this, Jay, you said this, or you almost said this, and then you didn't, and what was, let's please process those and bring them 
for that conversation on Sunday night in that week down the way. For now, though, this morning, let this be a book that unsettles us a bit. Even though we know it, even though we know the message, I'm, I, I hopefully in this am not coming across in a way that's like, man, if you just knew this, you'd really be amazing. Some of this stuff is like the paint's still wet on it for me, and I'm still trying to settle it out. But that's the beauty of God's word. It should never be a thing that's settled in our life, that, yep, got it, move on. But that we go, God, what are you saying? And what do you want me to do with this? And how should I respond? What do we do with the message that God's person runs away from the thing that God told him to do? What do you do with that? Man, Jonah was a jerk. Or man, I do that all the time. Which is more true? Both. If anything, my goal in this, it's not to have us have a less view of the Bible or the authority of Scripture. It's to expand it and to draw us into the mystery of these narratives and the stories and this poetry. You will never, ever get all of it, even in the most basic of the children's stories. And yet you can just scratch the smallest surface of it and encounter Jesus who saves. What an incredible, incredible the word of God given to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can soak in on this. Thank you for the way you preserved ancient manuscripts that are more than just interesting myths. God, thank you for the way you have used your word, these stories through the ages to draw young and old, and men and women into relationship with you. God, I pray that as we continue to move through this, that we would see ourselves in this story. That sometimes we're the sailors who actually don't really know what's going on but respond rightly to you. God, often we're Jonah. But Lord, you never stop contending with him. And I pray in our own lives, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reveal the stuff that you want to work away in us. God, maybe it is a prejudice against a people group. And maybe in our minds it's justified because of, you know what the Assyrians did. Or God, maybe it's a small picture of who you are, how far your love extends. Or maybe it's just a uh, me wanting my own story to go. Or maybe it's a wrong idea that when I see things going right, I think you somehow approve of some sin that I keep nursing. God, I ask that you would shape your people through this. And Lord, as we come to your table, as we take communion together, God, I pray that you would meet us in this. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for your shed blood, for the forgiveness of sin. God, thank you for that broken bread reminding us of your body actually broken for us. God, it's another story. We know it. We know this story. We tell it every Easter.
But God, there is such depth and mystery in this. So Lord, I pray that you would capture us. Just, just capture us with a wonder of you. Thank you for revealing yourself. God, thank you for grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank you that we don't have to earn a place to come to you, God. You receive us right where we are. God, thank you for fresh starts. God, thank you for a chance to repent that you don't just undo us. God, you are good. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to end with a song.